Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the 36th edition of Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles, and it's always a pleasure to feature luminaries in the world of sports, people that set the tone and set the bar high in their particular sports. Before I introduce this wonderful individual that I will be interviewing, make sure to subscribe and or rate Where They At on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Our Heart Radio, Stitcher, and also check out the podcast streaming on Catropolis Radio Network. And I want to now introduce this gentleman. I mean, this is one of, one of the great baseball players of the last 50 years, and he excelled at Michigan State University in both baseball and football. Then he became a major part of the consistent winning of the Los Angeles Dodgers throughout the 1970s and early 80s. He won National League Most Valuable Player in 1974 while making eight all-star appearances with the Dodgers, 10 overall, winning four gold gloves at first base, becoming the first player at any position in the history of Major League Baseball to have an errorless season. And also he won two National League Championship Series MVP awards, one with the San Diego Padres in 1984, of course, with the Los Angeles Dodgers as well. And he became a World Series champion in 1981 with the Dodgers. He is, re- he is the reigning National League Ironman, which means that he played 1,207 consecutive games and he should be in the Hall of Fame. No question about that. It is my honor and privilege to present the great Mr. Steve Garvey on where they at. How are you, sir? Great. Thanks for having me with you. Very impressed with with your series. And uh, thank you. You know, I just uh, have looked forward to talking to you ever since you first contacted me. So thank you very much. Oh, I, I appreciate it. And it means a lot coming from you, sir. Absolutely. And uh, and how are you and your family dealing um, with this COVID-19 pandemic? I mean, 2020 just completely changed mankind. Well, thank you. Uh, all the Garveys are, um, are well. Um, and, you know, we've all families, all individuals uh, uh, have uh, have uh, not only been going through this and God willing, uh, there'll be a, a shorter future to it. But uh, it's brought us all together in many, many ways, whether it's an individual family or collectively as as Americans and uh, of course throughout the world. Uh, having to deal with this uh, COVID-19, first time in history. So anytime you have something that uh, is an unknown, obviously they're going to have to be uh, baby steps taken and sometimes two steps forward and one step back. But I think collectively as a country, uh, we'll stick together and ultimately uh, defeat this and learn from it. Yes, indeed, sir. That is a great, great way to look at it. And 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 you were born and raised in Tampa, Florida, as an only child. Um, and and your father, you know, you have roots in Long Island, you know, in New York, and everything. You mentioned your father was a Greyhound bus driver, and this presented a major opportunity for you, right, when it came to your love for baseball. Oh, absolutely! It was my grandfather that was the Brooklyn policeman, so oh, he's the yes. one that uh, he's the one that. Uh, his beat was right near Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. Oh. So there were times when he would uh, take my my dad with him. And that's how my dad became a Dodger fan. Now, my mother grew up in a town called Baldwin, which mm-hmm. is, uh, I think, oh, about nice. 27 to the Hamptons. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she was more of a Yankee fan. So growing up, <laughs> and of course, literally almost seemed like every year, the Dodgers would play the Yankees in the World Series. So mom would be against dad and until 1955, the Yankees dominated. So she'd smile a lot and 
she was very kind to us. She still fed us and, and watered us so forth. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and then of course, for the historians, 1955, uh, that fall, the, the Dodgers finally beat the dreaded Yankees to, to have their first world championship. And uh, that following spring, uh, as a seven-year-old, my dad was then driving for Greyhound in, in uh, Florida. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came home the night before and he said, gosh, you want to skip school tomorrow? And I looked at him and said, Dad, <laughs> really? You never said that before. And I said, uh, what are we going to do? He says, well, I have a charter to pick up the Brooklyn Dodgers from the Tampa airport and take them to St. Petersburg, which is about 20 miles away, for a uh, Grapefruit League spring training exhibition game. So wow. uh, ironically, my dad and two of the gentlemen had started the second little league in Tampa, and we were going to have our uh, our opening day that that uh, following Saturday. And uh, I got in the brand new Rawlings Heart of the Hyde glove and a uh, new baseball. My dad and I played catch every night, and I was about to start uh, my love for baseball and started collecting uh, tops cards right away. So wow. that uh, that next morning, I got dressed, and dad and I got the bus, and we pulled to the tarmac of Tampa International Airport and about 8.15 in the morning the uh, DC-7 uh, jet banged in the in the gray pink uh, Florida morning and it landed in front of us and passed by and it had Dodgers on uh, on the side and a baseball on the tail and it was the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers mm. team plane so wow. that was my first wow moment uh, to see you know this world championship team uh, but also to see how they traveled, uh, the only team in baseball to have their own plane. So it was uh, pretty impressive for a young boy. Wow, so impressive. It was so impressive that you wrote a very, uh, very uh, wonderful book, like living those days called My Bat Boy Days, Lessons I Learned from the Boys of Summers. Share with the listeners, what were those pivotal lessons that you learned to help you become a perennial all-star and a future MVP with the Dodgers. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that first day was uh, actually the first chapter of the book. My wonderful wife, uh, Candace, uh, co-authored uh, along with Ken Gurnick, who does uh, MLB.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, that first day talks about me being in front of the, the bus on the tarmac with my dad and having my tops baseball cards in front of me. And and uh, I had a Reese and a Hodges and a Ferrillo and a Robinson, probably by the, about the third page I talk about as they came by me, uh, it was almost as if they, they, they walked off the, the tops baseball cards and came to life. And, you know, it's probably about a four foot nine kid at the time or 10 <laughs> uh, looking up to these uh, great players was, uh, was kind of a monumental moment. So, um, wow. you know, they'd pass by and then they'd pat me on the head and I wondered, you know, Hi, kid, and all this. And I wondered why. And dad said, well, you know, you got that flat top. Flat tops were popular back then. He uh, says, you got your bush spiky, wax. And spiky, it's all right? sticking up. And he said, I don't think they, they yes. They, they felt when the field was uh, really that prickly like a porcupine or not. And I said, well, maybe I won't do it that next time. He said, that's okay. You look very neat and clean. I said, thanks, dad. And we, uh, we got onto the bus and about 30 minutes later, pulled up to Al Lang Field in St. Petersburg and, uh, the players got off the bus, and of course, all the duffels were underneath, and you know, all the equipment and medical equipment. And I'm standing there, and a man comes out in boxer shorts and a t-shirt and a little cigar, and he goes, "Hey, kid, you want a bat boy?" 
And I looked at my dad and he nodded. And I said, yes, sir, I'd love to. It turned out to be the, uh, the equipment manager, the clubhouse manager. Uh, uh, and I would learn many times over the years, uh, he was your best friend in many ways. But uh, mm-hmm. I lugged the, the heavy bats and, and the ball bag and the helmet bag and took it out to the uh, dugout, started lining everything up. And I was hearing, they turned around. Of course, the Yankees were taking batting practice, and there was the great Mickey Mantle hitting baseballs into uh, Pinellas Bay. There, so uh, those are just a few of my first impressions of of uh, being a bat boy for the World Champions. Wow, amazing! Here with the great Steve Garvey, one of the great first basemen in the history of Major League Baseball, MVP, World Champion as well for the Los Angeles Dodgers, and also excelled with the San Diego Padres. Here on the thirty-sixth edition of Where They At. So, um, so Steve, now you ended up playing baseball for Chamberlain, Chamberlain yep. High School in, in Tampa, and excelling and getting those great lessons from those legendary players on the Dodgers and Yankees. And now, what made you decide to go to Michigan State University? How come you didn't stay in the Southeast? Very curious. Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I played football too, and I was, uh, mm-hmm. I think, a second or third team, you know, all-state quarterback. We had uh, East-West offense and option and um, was a pretty tough kid, I guess, played defense too. But uh, I had about 20 offers in baseball, Florida State, football, Florida, Miami baseball, Auburn uh, football, um, teams in the Northeast, uh, Kansas, as far west as Kansas. Uh, but our pitching coach in high school had played for a fellow by the name of Danny Litweiler, who was the uh, head coach of Florida State but up until my sophomore year. Then he got an offer to go to Michigan State, so he left mm-hmm. for there. But our pitching coach uh, contacted him and said, we got this kid down here who uh, probably go in the first couple of rounds of the draft, but really wants to play football and baseball in college. So uh, we got contacted by, by Danny in my uh, middle of my, my senior year. And uh, he invited me up and my mom and I took a Greyhound bus, surprise, surprise. It was a, <laughs> a uh, airline strike at the time. And uh, we got to East Lansing and uh, fell in love with it. And Danny Litweiler picked us up. We spent a few hours recovering from the long bus trip, and he gave us a tour of campus. Then we went to Jenison Field House, which is the traditional field house. It's almost like a museum inside and all the trophies. And Danny's pointing out the, the national championship football trophy uh, uh, two years before and uh, mm-hmm. going to the World Series and baseball of uh, college baseball. And all of a sudden, uh, kind of a diminutive man, about five net nine, turned the corner, white haired, and it was Duffy Yardy, the great yes, football indeed. coach. Yes, indeed. And he came up and he goes, Danny, is this the boy you're, you're telling me about? And he said, Yeah, the Steve Garvey and Mildred Garvey. And of course, uh, you know, he was that charming Irishman, Duffy Yardy. And he mm-hmm. said, Son, he said, uh, We heard a lot about you. You come here and you can play football and baseball should have been baseball and football, but, uh, <laughs> and he said, we got 22,000 co-eds. I guarantee a date on Friday night. And uh, we all started <laughs> laughing except for my mother. She <laughs> said, Mr. Doherty, I just want to make sure he gets a good, good college degree from this institution. He says, Oh, we will. No, he will. And, he should have um, whispered that to you. You're not like, that. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Not for my mom. So, you know, ironically, uh, you know, growing up and playing in Florida, you lose seven, eight, nine pounds a game in football in the fall because of the heat and humidity. And, uh, you know, playing out in the Midwest uh, was going to be a little cooler. So I decided that Michigan State was going to was going to be the place for me. And, and by the way, that was the beginning of 
of schools and, and one-dimensional athletes focusing on one sport. So, mm -hmm. uh, and one of the few guys that really left Florida to go go to the Midwest and the Big Ten at times. So uh, it was one of the best decisions I ever made and uh, mm -hmm. to have played football and baseball uh, for two years. At that time, you could sign professionally after your sophomore year mm -hmm. and to have been an All-American, but to have played football you know, on the, on the, in the big house at Michigan and at Notre oh. Dame uh, to have uh, USC in 1967 and this tailback by the name of OJ Simpson, who they had uh, acquired mm. from San Francisco city college. And it turned out to be a great game. 21, 17, we lost, but I had uh, four or five tackles on OJ that day. But I look back at, you know, life is about memories. And, and I always say we're in the memory business in sports, but to look back, and even for the two years of football and baseball, wonderful memories. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did get my degree, but it laid, a, to me, a great foundation for the future for me. Wow, no question about that. And, and it's funny, Kurt Gibson, another Dodger legend, world champion, same, you know, baseball and football, same as, I mean, are sure. you guys are you guys in touch regularly? I know he's suffering from Parkinson's, having some yeah. Yeah, issues well, with that. Yeah, we're good friends and, you know, we've seen each other from time to time and mm. our prayers are with him. But uh, he was a little faster than me. He was a wide out and uh, I was a uh, I was a corner. I went from being a quarterback to a corner. They didn't mm -hmm. have uh, they were low on defensive backs. And they said, OK, who are the guys that have played defense? I raised my hand. We did some tackling drills and Duffy said, uh, play a little right corner during the big scrimmage. Mm -hmm. and I said, OK, and uh Dummy me made uh, made a few tackles, intercepted a pass. You know, used my quarterback knowledge and and uh, seemed to be in the right place at the right time. And afterwards, he said, "Split your time." He said, "You you had a good day today." And uh, ended up, you know, starting at defensive uh, uh, corner and probably would have taken a much longer time at quarterback. But I always uh, told Duffy, "Thanks for getting me in the game." And he said, uh, "You did a good job. I wish you were faster." I said, well, <laughs> you know. I said, Mr. Hardy, I'm quick for 15 yards, and I just yell at the safety, help, help, help. So, <laughs> That's right. But, uh, uh, and all of a sudden, my boyhood dreams came true. 12 years after that first day of being a bad boy, I was drafted in the first, uh, first round of the Dodgers. Yes, indeed. And, and, you were, and you were helping, even though you didn't participate in the game of the century against Notre Dame, you helped the prepared. You, you were the quarterback. You played, you know, that That's role. Right. Yeah, That's <laughs> yeah, very good. Game of the century in 66. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, I had a chance to, uh, to play Terry Hanratty for uh, the week mm -hmm. and they just beat the heck out of me because we had all these all American you know, linemen like uh, Bubba Smith. That's and, right. Police and, Academy uh, fame. Lucas <laughs> and these guys. Yeah. So uh, on uh, Friday, you have a light workout at the stadium and Duffy called everybody around and uh, he's talking to him and he says, you see that, that, that teammate of yours over there, he sacrificed his body to get you guys ready this week. And you ought to give him a hand. And the guy it's, you know, gave you a big hand and so forth. I thought it was great. So as I limped off the field, Back in the clubhouse. <laughs> but uh, that's 66. That game the next day was the one of the greatest games I've ever seen. It was the first right. game of the century uh, mm -hmm. built on uh, ABC. And uh, mm -hmm. it turned out to be a 10-tie. And, uh, uh, you know, at, at the end there, they kind of ran out the clock. And knowing that they were going to play SC the next week, and it was a down year for SC. Mm -hmm. uh, and Eric Parsigian kind of ran it out knowing that. Of course, they beat him 52 to nothing the next week. Yep. But uh, 
what happened at, at Christmas time was I think Mr. Parsegian got 400 neckties uh, in, uh, in symbolism for the tie that he had against us. Uh, so uh, he had ties for the rest of his life. I thought it was a pretty cute thing that fans could do this. Wow, no doubt, no doubt. And, and, and also then I think the next great game after that was that Nebraska-Oklahoma game, 71. Right after, after that was, you know, like great rivalry, Michigan State, Notre Dame, and of course, Nebraska-Oklahoma, you know? Like, sure. um, yeah. wow, but with Steve. Now, Bubba Smith, was he funny as he was with, because I knew him from Police Academy growing up, but I yeah. didn't know until later that, that he was a first, the first pick overall in the 68 draft, I think, NFL draft. So was he funny back then too? <laughs> he was, you know, he's, he's a character, you know, he uh, nicknamed Bubba, you know, kill Bubba kill. Uh, there'd have to be a brand for him and he would drive around campus in a Cadillac with Bubba on the, on the door, you know, and uh, he was, uh, he was quite funny. But, you know, we, we, every year, uh, Duffy Doherty would go to Beaumont, Texas and come back with uh, three or four really good football players. That was a hotbed of Texas football. So his uh, Bubba's brother, Toadie, was in my class. He was a pretty good, uh, pretty good defensive end also. Mm -hmm. And uh, but every year it was a pipeline. And, and of course, Duffy was a pretty smart man. He had seven assistants. They covered the country and and Duffy would do Beaumont for two days and then Santa Barbara and Hawaii. So uh, <laughs> he, he, he would always pick up a football player to justify going to those two places, which are the, the top two on the recruiting charts as far as uh, places to go. So, uh, you know, he was, he was, he spread out with his recruiting. That's why he was very wow. successful in the, uh, in the sixties and, and even going back to uh, uh, back in the early fifties when the Spartans had their heyday then. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And God rest Bubba Smith's soul too, you know, and also uh, Duffy Doherty too, you know, as well. Yeah. Um, you know, they definitely end up. Uh, wow. So, so Steve, now when you joined the Dodgers, there was a slick fielding first baseman by the name of Wes Parker, very underrated, very underrated with the glove and everything. How yeah. did he serve as a mentor to you for you to be a slick fielding first baseman yourself to be a complete baseball player? Well, you know, I had, uh, played third base uh, coming out of Michigan State and then was a third baseman um, in the minor leagues. But I had a, a partial shoulder separation uh, mm. my first my freshman spring uh, because I had to go play both freshman baseball and uh, spring football. So I would I would go to baseball Mondays and Fridays, uh, football Tuesday, Wednesdays and Thursdays mm -hmm. and then play a doubleheader on on Saturday baseball. Uh, so it was, I was quite busy, uh, fit in nine holes of golf on late Sunday, I think after I studied, <laughs> but, uh, uh, to be able to do both of those, uh, things were something that was, yeah, it was a, a great challenge to me, but, um, you know, I realized that, uh, you know, somebody like the Bubba Smith would go in the first round. Maybe I could too, you know, because mm -hmm. Michigan State had that kind of athletic program. So, uh, all of a sudden after that sophomore spring, to be drafted in the first round, uh, but to have trouble throwing. So that was mm -hmm. a big thing. I could get to everything, but had trouble throwing the first base. So uh, my hitting started to improve. And then uh, at the end of 1972, West Parker retired. Mm -hmm. And uh, early 73, uh, Bill Buckner and Manny Mota would alternate at first. And, and Bill would also yeah. play left field. And my only role, I was literally the 24th guy on the team at the time. Ron Say had come up. He was playing third. 
So I'm sitting in, in, in my locker, a little turkey sandwich between games, and mm. all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see Walter Alston, the same Walter Alston oh, I saw yes. off that plane at the age of uh, seven. Oh, wow. Come up, and he stops, and he looks at me. He goes, you ever play first? And I go, oh, sure. Well, I played one game <laughs> in Little League and one game in Triple A. I had a bad <laughs> hamstring, and our dugout was in the first baseline. So uh, uh, I think time of the sort of thought, you know, where's the closest position for him? And uh, he said, well, grab a glove, Well, Dawson, play some first tonight. Don't trip over the bag. Get some hits. We're having troubles against lefties. And uh, he said, good luck. So I bought a mitt, got a bat boy. We played catch, had him throw a few at my feet. And uh, uh, that night I had two doubles, two RBIs, dug a ball out of the dirt, came off the bag to tag a runner. And uh, after the game, I'm, I'm sitting there. By the way, that was that first night was – Say a third, Russell at second, Lopes at uh, at yes. short, rather. Lopes at second, mm-hmm. myself at first. That was the first night of the infield that lasted mm-hmm. eight and a half years together. That's right. So uh, after the game, I'm sitting there. Those days where everything comes together, you have a great interview, or or you get a few hits and play a position for the first time. And uh, I see Mr. Olson come out of the uh, the runway there, and he walks by me, and he doesn't stop. And uh, I hear you're in there tomorrow. And Steve Yeager was my locker mate. And, <laughs> and I looked at him and he says, Yeager, is he talking to you or me? He says, Garvey, I think he's talking to you. And uh, so that, that June 23rd, 1973, was really the turning point in my career. And, you know, we all have turning points, pivotal points. Yes. And, uh, and that day, you know, was the first. Next, next day was a, a Sunday, same thing. Uh, played first base uh, without a mistake. I got a few more hits, and uh, after the game, the traveling secretary uh, came up and he said, uh, "Skipper said, get your rest on this trip. You're going to be playing a lot." Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. went on to hit 305 and uh, some home runs, and and you know, I got uh, solidified at first base, so that uh, I cruised in the 74, and that turned out to be a pretty big year for me. Oh, yes, indeed. A very special year overall in baseball with you winning the National League Most Valuable Player. But also you were in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. Uh, It was April 8th, 1974. The great Hank Aaron broke Babe Ruth's career record. And Bill Buckner, who you mentioned, trying to get, you know, climbing the wall, trying to get that catch. But um, talk about that moment and does that resonate with you with with because that's as one of the most historic moments in the history of the game like how memorable is that for you oh um you know significant in terms of um you know my life in baseball uh mm-hmm. baseball's relativity to society mm-hmm. uh the breaking of the color barrier with uh, jackie robinson yes, yes uh 1947 april 15th he took the field for the first time and mm-hmm. and uh and uh, began uh, the history of, of uh, integration, you know, mm-hmm. by baseball. Uh, we were always the leader in that. Uh, That's right. Then came Larry Doby and, and a number of gentlemen. And of course, uh, having been a bat, bat, bat boy for you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years after that first day mm-hmm. of being around my heroes and my idols, growing up with them, learning from them, mm-hmm. and then getting a chance to bat boy for the Yankees in Detroit. In that mm-hmm. same area, Tampa, once in a while, dad would get a different charter and he'd take me along. So to understand the importance of, of baseball and society, but also 
that historical record that was set by Babe Ruth that was supposed to be never, uh, never to be broken. Mm-hmm. And then to have that night, uh, Hank hit that pitch up Al Downing. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at it and I see Bill, like you said, climbing the fence. <laughs> uh, and I, but I see Tom House much closer to it. And Tom House, the great really pitcher and your friend, ends up with it. And just as I see it, all of a sudden I think, oh, I got to turn it. And Hank is going by me. So I didn't get a chance to, you know, slap his hand or anything. But uh, uh, I had a chance um, many times after that to play against him in, in all-star games and, yes. and uh, um, develop a friendship. But that was the, the first uh, historical moment I was part of. I was on the field for Pete Rose's uh, record-breaking. That's uh, right, 4,000. 4,106 yeah. uh, hit, right? 52, yeah, something like that. 52, yeah. Oh, goodness. I used to remember all that stuff. I'm getting old. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> no, you're getting mature. <laughs> but I was on the field when uh, Nolan Ryan threw a 6 0 hitter. Unfortunately, it was against us. And <gasps> when uh, Reggie Jackson hit the three home runs in uh, wow, game six true. of uh, 77 Mm -hmm. Uh, so i i had a a great seat for all these wonderful historical moments in baseball and had a chance to uh accomplish a few myself but uh uh, moments like that that trans transcend the sport and Mm -hmm. uh and say something uh again for the ability to come together and to realize that uh, all of us are human beings, and if we develop our skills and reach the ultimate level and, and perform, we're to be admired and and uh, and appreciated. And uh, and of course, Hank was was all that. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Here with the great Steve Garvey on the thirty sixth episode of Where They At. My name is Debate Owls and Steve. Now, your elite success in the postseason. I mean, it, it, it speaks for itself what you've done. I mean, batted 338 career-wise, 11 home runs, 32 runs scored in 55 games. I mean, definitely one of the clutch players in the history of the game. And what was your approach to help you excel when the light shines so bright, especially in a city like Los Angeles, La La Land? Well, you know, when you play in Los Angeles, uh, there's a lot of extraneous pulling on you, whether it's the press or um, (laughs) celebrities or a lot of demand on your time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's kind of a neat place to grow up as an athlete and as a uh, as a person. So um, once we started getting into postseason 1974 and ultimately the uh, World Series against the A's and the great World Series of 77, 78 with the and 81 with the Yankees. Um, again, Los Angeles, the left coast, uh, prepared you quite well uh, for the uh, the bright lights. And and I always uh, uh, carpe diem. You know, I always mm-hmm. seize the moment. Oh, I wanted to be up yeah. with the game on the line. Uh, a lot of very good athletes don't want to have the ball at the end or don't want to be at the plate or have the puck on their stick or uh, any of those things uh, mm-hmm. or be over a uh, a yeah, yeah. six-foot putt for the Masters, which uh, six-foot putts are tough enough, much less for the Masters. But, uh, you know, and people say, why are you successful? I said, because I wanted to be up there, and I, I went up aggressive, and and uh, I wanted to look hitterish. You know, a pitcher stands on the mound, and he sees a guy that's ready to hit and wants to hit He yeah. and has a certain reputation, and he's going to be a little more careful, and when you're more careful, there's a tendency to – to choke the ball a little more and try to aim it. And then the, the hitters got them right where they want them. But um, 
any key to success in a team sport is being surrounded with uh, uh, with teammates who are um, are very good what they, what they do, uh, who uh, have positions and, and responsibilities and know what they are and fulfill them. And then when you come together as a team after after a period of time, like our infield, eight and a mm. half years, one infield, arguably Ooh. the greatest infield in history. Uh, nice. I, I said by the middle of the second year, we would move together on each pitch because if it was a right-handed pitcher, left-handed hitter, Davey Lopes would see the sign from Steve Yeager. And if it was a curveball, he would go garb as the pitcher was coming forward. And I knew I'd take a step to my left because mm. it was a tendency for him to pull the breaking pitch. Mm-hmm. So I would say our infield over the course of 162 games, maybe 12, 15 runs, which uh, yep. uh, could equate to four or five victories just by doing one thing. And that's communicating and coordinating and moving together, mm-hmm. you know, for, for a specific purpose. So um, that's why we had people say, well, why are you successful? I'd go to five world series. I said, it was uh, it was a culmination of, of, of astute drafting, Mm-hmm. Uh, great minor league coaching and then uh, coaching at the ultimate level and the major leagues with Walter Alston and Tommy Lasorda and uh, Dick Williams and in uh, San Diego, I played for three Hall of Fame managers. That might Ooh. be a record. Yeah. So um, it was a combination of all those things, you know, and I, I always thank God that I had a chance to play a team sport because of the, uh, the ability to, to be we and do it together and, and uh, uh, achieve the ultimate prize being the world championship by uh, doing all those little things and playing the the game the right way. That's right. You did play the game the right way. And I I wanted to ask you, that was on my notes right here. You know, like you played for those legendary managers, like you mentioned, Walter Austin, Tommy Lasorda, Dick Williams, which manager did you relate to the most and compare each of their strengths? Well, you know, that's a good question. I, I, I've always thought that I was, and, and of course, everything's learned in life. You know, mm-hmm. we, uh, we have certain God-given things and the rest is learned. Uh, that I'm, uh, one of my better virtues is adaptability. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Christian, have faith. I love my Catholic church. Um, uh, I've learned that uh, what's most important is, is giving back in life. Uh, but it's also, uh, my mother used to tell me, you can't uh, talk and listen at the same time. So I think I've been a very good listener. And uh, I, I think mm-hmm. I adapted well to Walt Alston, who was a quieter manager, strong, 6'3". Uh, nobody ever challenged him. Mm-hmm. He had that uh, quiet demeanor. But if he said something to you, it meant that he had thought about it, thought it out. And uh, he was going to, in few words, tell you what you needed to do to be successful. And then Tommy Lasorda was my first manager in the minor leagues and Ogden, Utah and Spokane, Washington, and then seven years in the majors. And he was the PT Barnum of baseball, you know, yes. gregarious and outgoing. And uh, nobody was more fun than Tommy, more intense than Tommy, mm-hmm. get us in more fights. Uh, but he loved the game of baseball. And if, if you love the game and you were willing to put in time, and you love that Dodger blue, then you're one of his boys. Not everybody liked him, right? He's mm-hmm. uh, he's a special cup of tea, I guess you would say. But those <laughs> of us that did, that realized that uh, if we listened and learned from Tommy, that we would take us to higher levels. And and he did. And then Dick Williams, mm-hmm. more of a drill sergeant, mm-hmm. uh, excellent X's and O's guy, treated you as a man, expected you to act that way on and off the field. Um, he made mistakes. He was going to tell you. He was going to be harsh and stern. 
but that's what good teachers do. All three managers were great teachers, and and uh, and maybe that's why they're in the Hall of Fame because they just didn't, they just weren't tough or you know or whatever it may be for the moment. Uh, but they were teachers, and you see the great coaches, uh, uh, Tom Izzo at Michigan State basketball. Yeah, of course. You watch a Spartan game, and he is sure he's crazy at times, but he's <laughs> teaching his players all. Mm-hmm. 12 or 15 of them throughout the game. And right. uh, he's making, you know, men out of boys and, uh, and uh, great college players out of, uh, out of kids who maybe thought they wouldn't play again after high school. That's right. That's right. And Tom Izzo, learn to listen, listen to learn. That's, that's my favorite quote. Yes, indeed. Wow. So, and Steve, now I want to ask you, speaking of Dick Williams, he was the manager for two of the championships for the Oakland A's that dominate Oakland A's team uh, in the seventies. Now you played against potent teams too. You were, you were rivaled against cause in 74, you played that A's team that won their third straight then in the world series, then the big red machine, you know, NL West rivals, you know, in the 70s and then the Yankees in the late 70s going into the early 80s. Which team was just the most difficult and, and the more potent team out of those three dynasties at that time? Well, you know, that's a great question. Um, the A's had their dynasty, you know, and dynasties are, are uh, yeah, they were good for so long they became great. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think I, I, I'm not, I don't use a lot of adjectives or superlatives when I'm commenting. I did pre and post game for the world series uh, for Fox LA this year. Mm. I don't throw around the great, spectacular, fantastic, uh, those things very much. Uh, I think the Dodgers are probably the team of the decade this year oh. uh, and turned out to be very, very good. Mm. But when you win over a period of time, uh, maybe three times out of four years or whatever, then you can be labeled greatness during that, that, that period of time, that decade or that era. Mm-hmm. So um, it was really the Reds that were oh, okay. the best team. Um, mm-hmm. Yankees obviously beat us twice. Why don't I give them more credit? I do. Uh, they were the better team in 77, 78. Uh, uh, certain players you know, rose to the occasion then, like Reggie with his three home runs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but day nettles, in, day out. nettles with that defense, <laughs> Greg. Nettles. Yeah, you had to, re- had to remind me of that, did you? Yeah, you stole oh, one from me. Uh, but that's what, uh, what, what exceptional players do. You know, they rise to the occasion and and put a game or series together that's memorable. So, um, but you know that Reds team. I mean, arguably, when we played them from '73 to '83, mm. that'd be 10, 12 All Stars on the team. And of course, they had. They had Rose and Concepcion and Bench and, and Morgan and, um, you Tony know, Perez. They, yes, Tony indeed. Perez. Yeah. George, so George many Foster. Yeah. <laughs> we had our guys, you know, the infield. And then we had Dusty Baker and Reggie Smith and mm. Monday and Jaeger and Sutton. And, you know, I mean, so, you know, people say, what was the rivalry like? I said it was the best in baseball at that time and one of the best in history. Um, and I know you, People look back at Red Sox and Yankees and whomever it may be. Uh, but uh, for that 10-year, what I call the golden era, uh, we would play 18 games a year. 16 would be within three runs, and each team would have a blowout you know, of, of the other game. But uh, mutual respect, never had a fight with each other. Sparky Anderson, Tom Lasorda, they might bark at each other once in a while. But it was more for uh, PR value than anything else. 
John McNamara also was a manager later on. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's, those were great memories. Those were when the stadiums were, were completely full for everyone uh, because they appreciated two exceptional teams playing each other at the highest level. Mm, wow. And Steve, I want to ask you, it's very interesting. Jerry West, I uh, produced um, a radio special that was his 80th uh, birthday special. I produced that a couple of years ago. And he mentioned when they finally won the Lakers in 72, finally won their first championship. He didn't feel he didn't feel relief. He just was like, oh, OK, this is it. Because after losing eight NBA finals before that. So when yeah. the Dodgers won in 81, like winning their first World Series after four, you know, the, in four appearances, you know, what was your feeling, you know, about winning that championship? Like, uh, was it different from what Jerry West felt? Yeah, you know, uh, we had this group together again, starting mm. in 73, basically. Mm. And uh, we were starting to run out of time because free agency had kicked in and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Al Campanis, uh, the exceptional GM, that basically the reason for our success is he kept us together. He signed us for long-term contracts. He would add, you know, like I said, a Baker, a Jimmy Wynn, uh, a Smith, yeah. a Monday. And uh, so for this basically same 20 guys, he would add a, a very good player uh, that would take us into the World Series. Mm-hmm. So... Um, but in 81, it was this feeling that, you know, this may be it, our last yeah. chance. And we have this strike and lockout, uh, shortened season, 110 games. They split it into two halves. We won the first half, mm. uh, I think, by half a game over Cincinnati. Mm. And, um, you know, then we have the first NLDS. And we get to – we drop the first two games to Houston, have to win the next three. Mm-hmm. Uh, we play Montreal and then NLCS and we split back then it was three out of five games. Yes. So, uh, you know, you could be the clearly the better team and face two well-pitched games and, and all of a sudden you're in the hole and that's what happened. Um, uh, the great Burroughs pitched, uh, the Sunday, uh, of the uh, second game of the NLCS and beat mm-hmm. us. It's a great game. We go to Montreal Trying to think, of, I think it was uh, Steve Rogers. Steve Rogers, yeah, he was the ace. And, uh, and Rick Monday, Rick one. Monday with the homer. <laughs> yeah, well, what, that, that was game three. I had mm-hmm. a two-run home run in uh, the eighth inning of game four uh, to win that one. And then, of course, game five was the classic in uh, the tundra of Olympic Stadium in Montreal. Ooh, yeah, um, It was about 28 degrees that day. And oh. uh, it, it would snow literally three hours after the game, but uh, in a great game, Rick Mundy hits that home run in the top of the ninth off of Steve Rogers, who came in for relief. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we end up with uh, with two outs and the bases loaded. And uh, I think uh, uh, White was his name, was at the plate. Mm-hmm. And the first uh, pitch against Bobby Wells, she hits it, hits a smash down the line, just hooks foul. And we're like, oh, my Lord. Thank you. Uh, by the way, I don't think God, you know, takes sides. Anybody that does all this, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's great if it works for you. And if you're asking God for protection, but I don't think he's going to choose me over you or you over me. That's right. So, it's, it, yeah. uh, and then the uh, two pitches later, there's a ground ball to Davey Lopes. And, and uh, I'm waiting there and he throws his sidearm and it sinks and, I have to pick it out of the dirt and I'm on my knees and Bobby Walsh is on top of me and, and uh, that seals it. We go on to New York 
And we start up and drop the first two. I said, look, this is, this is the scenario. This mm -hmm. seems to be destiny for us. Let's just go back and win three straight and finish them off back at Yankee Stadium. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. Yes, indeed. Here with Steve Garvey, uh, 36th episode of Where They At. My name is Nabatao. Steve Garvey, former MVP of the National League, also a four-time Gold Glove winner, 10-time All-Star, world champion, should be in the Hall of Fame for sure. And uh, now, Steve, um, reflect on how you turned around that San Diego Padres franchise after your high-profile signing as a free agent, as well as playing with a young Tony Gwynn. Well, I had never thought that I wouldn't be a Dodger my whole career. Mm -hmm. And uh, my contract was up in 82 and uh, Jerry Capstein and I uh, wanted to sign before actually spring training started in 82 uh, because I knew there was going to be pressure on, are you going to sign and on the Dodgers? And uh, they had hired a, a, uh, an attorney first time to do negotiations instead of Al Campanis. Mm -hmm. And uh, they decided just to wait till the end of the season. So the pressure was really on me. Every time we go to a town, are you going to sign? Are you going to sign? Oh. And then uh, the season ended. And uh, November, 4th, November 15th every year was the uh, deadline mm -hmm. uh, to sign free agents. It was a different time back then. And uh, I remember it was we had to, had to come to an agreement by uh, 9 p.m. on November 15th. And we're at this tall building downtown L.A. in this big conference room and uh, with uh, – Peter O'Malley, and we just couldn't come to an agreement. I knew it probably was going to be my last contract, uh, five years, and I just wanted parity. And they saw it differently, and it was a it was a sad uh, tick of the clock. And uh, uh, we all got up, and there was almost dead silence in the room. And we walked outside, and of course, it was fifty press, and uh, press conference started. And at that time, they couldn't resign you, which was mm -hmm. yeah, it was too opposite. Absolute at that time. So then five teams could draft you to uh, to sign as a free agent. And it was uh, San Francisco, the Cubs, the Yankees, Houston, and San Diego. And uh, Jerry Capstone and I did a little tour, ended up in, in uh, San Diego. And and uh, Ray Kroc, the, the, uh, the great uh, founder of McDonald's and owner of the Padres, yeah. said, uh, I want to talk to Stevie. He just, he and I. So uh, the next day went to his cliff top home there in La Jolla. Yeah. You could see Mexico one way and LA the other <laughs> way. And He's the character. <laughs> I walked in. Yeah. A lovely lady greeted me and uh, took me into this huge den, magnificent picture windows. And he was behind this big desk and he was sitting there and he was doing this and touching, touching things. And uh, he says, yep. I said, Mr. Crock, what are you doing? He says, check another store, Stevie, check another store. Well, there were six <laughs> monitors. And each one had like North America, South America, Europe. Asia, <laughs> and he would click a button to see what the sales were that day. And uh, we called up Mr. Capstein and his son-in-law, Ballard Smith, was the president. Mm -hmm. And that was maybe four o'clock in the afternoon, Saturday afternoon. And he told him, let's get this done by, uh, by noon the next day. And it was done. And uh, that became five years in San Diego. And of course, after the first, my first year there, it was quite a, a baptism and indoctrination, whole different culture and, and, uh, and feeling there. Loved mm -hmm. it, but it was different. And, uh, but it was Tony Gwynn's second year and Alan Wiggins was the second mm -hmm. baseman That's and right. Gary Templeton who had come from the Cardinals was uh, a very good shortstop. Mm -hmm. Terry Kennedy was the catcher. 
Uh, we had this kid McReynolds who looked like uh, Mickey Kevin. Mantle. You Kevin know, McReynolds, and, yeah. <laughs> taller. And mm -hmm. uh, we had a pretty good foundation and some good young pitching. Dave Durecki was one. Um, yeah. You know, just Eric, Eric Snow, too. Yeah. 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 He was here, too. Yeah. So um, I ended up uh, sliding, broke broke consecutive game streak uh, the second week back at Dodger Stadium. Mm -hmm. And, uh, oh, I would say about five weeks later, I got, got off to a good start, uh, tore the ligament in my thumb sliding in the home plate. So I that in the best season. Mm. So I got the hand back together in the off season, got in great shape. And, uh, and Jerry Capstone had also, uh, he also uh, had Goose Gossage and Greg Nettles uh, that he represented. Mm -hmm. So he talked Ray in, he said, you got Garvey, you see what he can do, he can do, he's active in the community. I got these two guys who are like Garvey have postseason experience, won world championships. These could be the the two closers for you to to get to the postseason. Mm -hmm. So uh, Ray bought it, um, offered them same deal, Big Max and Rich fries. They took it, and uh, <laughs> at eighty four starts and I think uh, first twelve games at home. Major League Baseball wanted to play the the first couple weeks in the southern half of the country. And we won 10 of those games, got off to a great start. Goose was Goose. Greg played exceptional third base. Power hitter down the line. And uh, Tony started to to emerge as a premier hitter and um, took us into the postseason against the Chicago Cubs, who thought they were going to win it all. That was going to be their year. And mm. something happened to the World Series. And uh, the Padre uh, Brown and Gold ended up playing the uh, Detroit uh, Blue and Orange. Wow, that's right. That's right. Poor Leon Durham. Poor Leon Durham. Yes. You know, which, yeah. And which is a coincidence how two years later, your former Dodgers teammate, Bill Buckner, the same thing happened to him. That's deep right there, you know. Yeah. So as a first yeah. baseman, where you know, each position has a fraternity. And mm -hmm. uh, even though ball went, you know, under Leon's glove and uh, I still felt for him, you know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it led to a big, I think, a big sixth inning move from there. And then, and then Billy, I was uh, entertaining uh, some advertisers for Sports Illustrated at Shea Stadium that night. Oh, and, you uh, were there! Oh my goodness! I was goodness. there, and I saw him go down, and then ball, you know, went went by him, and I looked up and I said, "Lord, thank you." And it wasn't me. Uh, <laughs> I knew exactly what happened. Uh, you know, Shea Stadium was was built on a landfill for the mm -hmm. uh, World's Fair. Yep. And uh, once you got to first base, it would it would gradually drop off because it had sunk over the years. If, like if it was a rain at Shea Stadium, the puddle would build right in, in right field there. Uh -huh. uh, so when Bill went over to fill the field the ball and he's left handed, right handed, you're right there. Left handed mm -hmm. got to move around. And he went to go get it and didn't couldn't quite get down enough. And the ball and bad hops stay down sometime. The ball took a hop under his glove, and you know he, he became probably the most maligned player in baseball for um, for a generation. But and, yeah. and been one of the best. Mm -hmm. Twenty seven hundred hits. That's right. He won a batting title and uh, was a true gamer. Struck out maybe twenty two times, twenty five times a, a year. Yeah. You know? So um, and my first roommate. You know, and all Oh, wow. So did you speak with him after that happened? Did you find him to kind of console him? Well, I couldn't get to him that night. See, okay. World Series, but I did. Uh, I did talk to him uh, once the World Series was over. And we I talked about perspective. And I said, you know, 
it's one thing to do that in San Diego. It's another thing to do it in Boston, you know, where, yeah. where sports is, is life in, uh, in New England. Uh, and uh, it took time. You know, it took time and they were merciless on him. Eventually they drove him out of New England. But, you know, Billy had this wonderful ranch in Boise, Idaho and mm -hmm. uh, and became a hitting coach in different organizations, loved the game, gave back to it. And um, and then what was it? Maybe 10 years ago, I guess mm -hmm. they invited him back to Fenway yes, Park for the yes. day. And uh, he got like a 10, 12 minute standing ovation. Yes. And yes. I was watching from California here and. I told my wife, Candace, honey, you got to watch this. And we had tears in our eyes. So yes. it, was, it was a forgiveness on, on his part and a uh, uh, kind of an absolution on, on the fans' part that we made a mistake. You know, please forgive us. And, uh, and life has gone on. We'll dearly miss him. He passed away from dementia yes. last year. Absolutely. And, uh, but he was a, he was a great player. Yes, he was. And and Steve, the thing is that it wasn't really his fault because first of all, the bullpen, because I'm a I'm a Met fan. So I, that yeah. night, that night was <laughs> it right. was wonderful, you know, because after Henderson, Henderson hit that home in the top of the 10th. I was sure. like, because I was I was a young kid. I fell asleep. You know, it was a Saturday night, too. I fell asleep. So, yeah. so I didn't have a school. You know, it wasn't a school night. So I fell asleep. Right. And I remember waking up right when Henderson hit that home run. I was I was crying and I was literally crying, you know, and and then that happened. But the bullpen blew it also. Yeah. You know, they had two. There were two, situ three situations where it was two outs, two strikes. Right. And then yeah. Buckner should have not been on the field because John McNamara, who, who we talked about earlier, <laughs> left him on to have him celebrate. You can't do that. You still have to think like Stapleton should have been on the field. He was the defensive replacement. So, yeah. so yeah. it's and, not his and by fault. The way, that was game six and mm -hmm. uh, game seven. Yeah, that was game six and game seven. Um, you know, they still up. Yeah, uh, they led three nothing. Two. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. three nothing. Well, you know your baseball. Okay. I'm here with Steve Garvey, um, former MVP, World Series champion, 10-time All-Star, one of the great first basemen in the history of the game on the 36th edition of Where They At. My name is Debate Owls. About the Hall of Fame and everything, um, you're you're still hopeful that you'll get in because you should get in for sure in, in, in the near future. I mean, you're still hopeful that that's going to happen. You just like whatever, if it happens, it happens. Well, you know, I, I, I hope so. I've been on the ballot for 25 years, <laughs> at least, Ugh. maybe 30, uh, 15 years for the original. And then the, uh, um, the Veterans Committee, of course, they've changed that to uh, expansion era from 70 to 90. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's now 16 voters. And it, it, it takes the right mix. Sometimes there's more East Coast, uh, more Midwest. It, it depends on who it is. But um, my career is the body of work. You have to, uh, you have to dig into it. I mean, everybody says the same thing as you, whether it's Mad Dog and Sirius Radio or mm. uh, ESPN or Peoria, you know, <laughs> radio, whatever it may be. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, I think it will come and uh, it would be an honor. Uh, it would be an honor to represent the hall to um, to be able to promote it, promote baseball around the country. Uh, my dear friend, Claire Smith, uh, who was the first woman journalist in, uh, in the Hall of Fame was mm. inducted a couple of years ago. Wow. And uh, I was there for that. She made me stand up because I, uh, when women weren't allowed in the clubhouse in 84, I went outside and, and comforted her and helped her get her story. So she, uh, 
she gave me credit. She wouldn't let me sit down, by the way. So, <laughs> so I'm gonna, wow. that's why I want to get in the Hall of Fame. I want, it, I want that to happen to her. But, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and everything, every good thing takes time. And we're in God's time and in his hands. And I've always said, would the Hall of Fame define me? Uh, no, I think, uh, uh, and I've, I've always said my philosophy is uh, we're measured by numbers, uh, by at-bats, home runs, strikeouts, wins and losses, uh, but we're defined by, uh, by how we played the game, how we live our life, uh, what we believe in. So, um, you know, God willing, it'll happen someday. Well, no doubt. It will. It will. No doubt. And I will make sure to be at that induction ceremony. Absolutely. Current events now, the Los Angeles Dodgers finally won that elusive World Series championship after eight division titles in a row you know so it's amazing and they have a feature i mean steve they have a young core like cody bellinger Corey seager of course mookie betts that is still like they're in their prime but young on the other on the young side of their prime then they have dustin may gavin lux those the young up-and-coming uh farm system you know kids from the farm system that that is deep and then money to burn you know, yeah. so I have to ask you an honest question. The Dodgers one World Series in the next like eight years will not be enough. Am I right? Well, it uh, well, it's up to them. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I've said uh, if you had you know, gone to Europe the last 30 years, moved to Europe and been a Dodger fan, lost track of them somewhat and, and come home and said, how many world championships have the Dodgers won? And somebody would have said none. They said, no, it can't be. They must have won three or four at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's been amazing. It was uh, you know, a 32-year journey until uh, they finally won the championship uh, just recently. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a tribute. And like I said on TV at that final night and final analysis, uh, uh, it's, it's a whole team on and off the field. You know, the team was bankrupt about six years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I put a good group together and one of the great uh, business uh, moments in my life raised $1.5 billion <laughs> and, uh, and then came up $700 million short. So uh, you can't beat a hedge fund. <laughs> so, uh, but Guggenheim bought the team. They've done a very good job in building uh, the infrastructure of the minor league system. Uh, their, uh, their international office has done very well. Uh, but really, the, the ability to also go out and pick a key free agent like a Mookie Betts, Betts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, usually kind of rounds out a team for, for, for a certain year. So that infrastructure, I think, is, uh, is in a good place. Um, you know, I think that uh, the, the toughest thing to do in sports is to close. And they were frustrated in 17 and 18. Uh, they thought they were on their way in 19, only to get knocked out in the first round by the Nationals, the eventual uh, mm-hmm. winner. They seem to be you know, constantly beaten by the ultimate World Series winner. Yeah. And this year, you know, they, um, you know, with the NLCS, they all of a sudden get behind three to one in games to Atlanta. And somebody asked me that question, would you think it's over for the team? And I went back to my, uh, my earlier days and said they got them right where they want them. And people mm-hmm. say, how can you say that? These Braves, they're young and all this. They said, well, the Dodgers have changed somewhat in that they don't rely strictly on the home run. They can yeah. manufacture runs. They can take walks, things they haven't done previous years. And I said, uh, they're doing that very well. And 
they're starting to see the bullpen every night and they're getting used to it. And uh, I said, that could make the difference. They win the next two. Then the pressure is on Atlanta and the young guys because they haven't been there before in game seven. They win that and, uh, and against a, a, a good Tampa Bay team, you know, a team with uh, good starters, exceptional bullpen, um, power also, but not the ability to really manufacture runs when you right. need them. So as the World Series went on, I, I predicted six games. I didn't uh, realize that Saturday was going to be uh, wild and crazy with two out and two strikes in the ninth. Oh, and, uh, yeah. right. Oh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they uh, that that got it to six. We went in six and now they're they're set up. I, I've always said arguably the one of the toughest things to do in sports is repeat as a champion. Mm-hmm. So they have that challenge next year, but I think uh, they're well positioned. Yeah. yeah. Who's the best player in the game, Trout or Betts, Mike Trout or, or Mookie Betts? Well, you know, that's a good question. I think that uh, that Mike Trout, uh, you know, and again, it's it's all relative to your team's needs. You know, uh, Mike, Mike's that second or third. He's got the power, hits for average, uh, mm-hmm. gold gloves. Uh, without him, who knows, you know, there could be at the bottom, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mookie, on the other hand, has played on some very good teams. Uh, now he's slotted in that uh, leadoff spot and gets on. He steals some bases. Uh, so he does the other things very well, 5-2 a player. Take your choice. You know, I never like to say one player is the best in the game because who's the best pitcher? Uh, who's the best catcher? Who does this better? Um, but those two are on an elite level of – I, I arguably say the the top five. Mm, okay. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Those two. And for years to come, they're going to continue that. Now, Justin Turner, what should take in that situation? Like um, how major league baseball handled it as well as how he handled it by putting himself around teammates, knowing he had COVID-19 tough for anybody. They, they think they can understand what it's like on that final out. Mm-hmm. And the team coming together, you know, the obligatory by the mound and the celebration. And, and, and for me in 81, um, all the, the, uh, all the times of hitting little grapefruits for my, my trees in the backyard and being the Yankees and the Dodgers and wiffle balls playing cork ball and, and being in scenarios where the Dodgers are beating the Yankees until my mom yelled out who's winning. And I'd yell to Yankees, mom, Yankees. <laughs> um, and this is the culmination of, of, of all that time. And now he's inside. He's basically quarantined all of a sudden in the, in the seventh inning, which I can't imagine how that happened, but it did. <laughs> right. And now his teammates are pulling him out because they want him because he's a leader on this team and so important to him. And he, he did have his mask when he came out, but then he took it off of the pictures, which is understandable. And I'm watching all this and we're commenting. And then I see him standing on first baseline with Andrew Friedman, the uh, president of baseball. And both mm-hmm. of them don't have masks. And I'm thinking, uh oh, you know, this is, there's going to be a mention of this. And then, you know, he's beaten up in the press. And um, does he admit he should have had it on? Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. Should he have stayed in the, in the clubhouse? Uh, probably. Um, should Major League Baseball have had somebody with him? and understood this at this moment, this time, and maybe walked him out and said, let's take the picture. Come on, we'll go back in and shepherd him. I mm-hmm. think so. Um, so there's a lot of hindsight. There's a lot of, you know, the old shoulda, woulda, coulda. Um, 
and and you know a lot of people admit you know it wasn't handled well we're going to move on mm-hmm. um you know how society is now the the democrats will say he infected the whole stadium and the republicans will say well two people who are a you know symptomatic got it and that was it so, yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> it's just the way life is you know mm-hmm. it's how, how you perceive things but uh he'll go on and and again he's he's made his apologies and uh, he'll be accepted yeah, absolutely. And he's definitely one of he's been there through the through the tough times and and finally winning in that elusive title as you experienced finally winning in 81 yeah. and everything. So um, how happy are you Southern California baseball in the next decade with the Padres, how they're coming up with transcendent talents like Fernando Tatis Jr. and Manny Machado and you got Mackenzie Gore coming up Dodgers Padres. It could be it could be a better rivalry than the Yanks Red Sox, right? <laughs> you know, could could very well be in better weather too, by the way, in shorter right. games. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but you know, I mean, the Padres were missing uh, two of their top three starters um, mm-hmm. in that NLDS, so That's it right. could have been uh, an entirely different situation. And um, mm-hmm. you know, even though it went three straight games and the two of them were close, or three of them were close for you know, for all, for six innings at least, mm-hmm. but uh, that could have easily gone five. And, and, you know, if it goes five, who knows what can happen, but mm-hmm. Padres are in good position, very proud of them. Um, they're spending money, their minor league system. Yeah, unfortunately, oh. the fruits of losing uh, is going to be high draft choices. And then your ability to develop them is going to be the next key. And they're mm-hmm. they've, like I said, they got Gore coming up. They got even more arms that uh, are going to oh, be. Uh, Lord, yes. Throwing 98 all the time and 92 sliders and 80 mile an hour changeup. So, <laughs> well, and and sir, um, now before I let you go, I like to do this segment. Uh, it's a segment called Hit and Run. If you were a basketball player, be fast break. If you're a football player, be no huddle. If you're a tennis player, be serving volley. But this is a a quick a segment where I give you quick questions and then you uh give me like you know like a, a sentence answer. But if you want to expound on it, feel free. You know, um, you call it Hit and Run. I know Hit and Run. Yes, sir. <laughs> so well, so so here it is. His first one underrated player during your playing years the one player that should get more recognition than he has received especially now as time goes on people forget about him oh lord uh, this there's so many of them uh, well guys that are uh, annually on the hall of fame voting uh, tommy john mm-hmm. uh, uh jim cott is another one yes. uh, um you know, great, they, great defensive pitcher, Jim Cod, like what, 18 go 16 gold gloves. Crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who's counting after the first 12 or 14? You know, something <laughs> like that. Um, gosh, you, you know, there's, there's a handful of guys. Uh, Dale Murphy uh, never got indeed. the recognition. Played in Atlanta. Right. Uh, you know, they're, they're probably, again, five or six guys that uh, arguably in the right situation could be voted in the Hall of Fame. Uh, who were underrated, maybe where they played, maybe they didn't get the postseason that much, but every day they took the field, um, they were true professionals and true examples of how you play the game. No doubt. Del Murphy, two-time MVP. And your dance partner... Dave Parker, by the way. Dave Dave Parker, Parker too. Yes, indeed. Oh, yeah. Part of We Are Family, you know? (laughs) You know, and and it's so funny, you and Dave Murphy were dance partners during that crazy fight between the Padres and Braves. Like, (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's it's a sign of maturity when fights break out. You grab the guy that's probably, yeah, you know, your comparable person on the other team, whether it's Dale Murphy or whatever it is, you know, and uh, you kind of dance over to the side. You make it look good, you know, and you look out there at what's happening and say, those crazy guys, somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to get a clavicle or a broken <laughs> finger or whatever. So. Wow. Wow. Those are great names you mentioned. Those are, oh, I remember, you know, just starting to watch baseball on those guys for sure. Al Oliver. Yeah, oh, what a hitter. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Oh, wow. So toughest pitcher you faced in your career? Well, I faced, uh, I think, 11 or 12 Hall of Fame pitchers mm -hmm. who were the reason they're there. You know, every time they went out, they were even when they didn't have their good stuff, they they pitched. You know, instead of through, they, they knew what to do. Uh, but I always say Phil Necro was uh, the toughest. Oh, knuckleball. And um, <laughs> Phil was through the knuckleball, and he didn't know where he was going, and the catcher didn't know where he was going. You're supposed to hit it. So he um, was extremely difficult. But the other fellow that probably was underrated, too, was uh, J.R. Richard. J.R. Richard was 6'8", through upper 90s, slider, yes. you know, low 90s. Uh, every time he released it, it felt like it was right in front of you. You know, it was Ooh. that long arm. Uh, and every time you faced him, he was extremely difficult. So uh, he's probably, you know, my pick. Wow, made that's right. He's a preacher now, and he, uh, I think, in Houston, yeah. he's still in the Houston area. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, now, most bizarre moment you experience on the field? Well, <laughs> that's that's a good question. Um, from a, a social standpoint, uh, remember uh, Morgana Roberts, the Kissing Bandit? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. She was. Uh, well, I think she was a. Um, dancer in san francisco you know one of those things <laughs> but she had a reputation of coming onto the field and uh, kissing players uh, mm -hmm. george brett uh, pete rose <laughs> so one night we're at dodger stadium and it's a it's a it's a crucial situation bases loaded i think um i've got a two and oh count i'm ready for that fastball and all of a sudden hear the noise of, a, of the crowd but it's almost a wave coming down from left field line and the umpire calls time, and the pitcher stops, and the pitcher looks towards third, and here's Morgana coming down the third baseline, and I, and I get this feeling that she's coming after me. <laughs> but at that time, you could always hear Vince Scully in the stands because you know people would carry transistor radios and so mm -hmm. and so forth, mm -hmm. and uh, and I just happened to hear because people are starting to laugh and figure, uh oh, she's going after Garvey. And uh, Vin goes, and well, here comes Morgana, proceeding herself by five minutes, and I think she's after Garvey. And uh, <laughs> she came up, and, and what do you do? You know, I could dance around. I just there, and she kissed me on the cheek, and the ushers took her off. And uh, But um, you talk about a bizarre moment. And, uh, <laughs> and then I hit a, a, a deep fly ball to center field for a sacrifice fly, so... Nice. It all worked out in the end. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, that's for sure. And now the most bizarre teammate you've ever had. <laughs> oh, uh, well, Jay Johnstone, uh, who we uh, had passed away a couple oh. Of months ago. Oh, uh, wow. He was really? Okay. But uh, he was the, uh, the prankster, the character in the clubhouse, the guy that kept us loose. He and uh, Jerry Royce were co-conspirators uh, for <laughs> all these different kinds of pranks. 
but the best one they ever did was uh, one night, I think it was 81 maybe, um, sitting there at September night and, and uh, it just came in from the field and it was the fifth inning and the ground crews dragging the infield. Mm -hmm. And I'm just looking, I'm saying, wait a second, it's an awfully tall, I've never seen him on the grounds crew. Well, John Stoner Royce had traded uniforms with the grounds crew and hats and they were both carrying screens. You know, you got about six guys that go around and they were carrying screens. And I'm watching them go to second. I said, hey, Tommy, look at those guys out there between second and first. Recognize me? He goes, that's John Stoner Royce, right? I'm going to find those guys. They're embarrassing the Dodger uniform. And you know, they came back in about five, six, seven minutes later, they both come up the end uh, of the dugout from the tunnel. And Tommy puts on a little show. And, You're fine. $1,500, both of you. And John Stone, if I need you, you better get a hit. Well, he hit a two-run homer in the eight. And uh, we won the game. And um, <clears throat> the next morning on the Rick D show, the big national. Oh, yeah. Rick he called right. me up, asked me what happened. I said, hey, you know, these guys made everybody laugh. We won the game. We got to do a fundraiser. So we ended up uh, raising, I think, about $4,500 uh, to go to the uh, Royce Johnstone uh, Fine Fund, which uh -huh. was going to the charities. So uh, it turned out to be quite a, a prank, but uh, one of their best. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And now, oh, the player who reminds you of you, the current player in Major League Baseball. Oh, that's a uh, good. Well, I would say and he's 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 close with because uh, of the Dodgers. Uh, Corey Seager. Okay. Uh, he uh, when I first saw him, he played against my son Ryan, who was with the Rockies at the time when he first mm. came up. They were in Ogden, where I started. Mm. And uh, after the game, Ryan came over. He said, uh, "He said that kid's got it." I said, "Which one?" He said, "Corey Seager." And I said, yeah, I watch him. You got good moves. Looks like a nice, he's really nice. He came up to me and said, why aren't you playing with us? Why aren't you on the Dodgers? I said, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and I've talked to Corey, you know, periodically each year uh, about his approach to the game on and off the field. And mm -hmm. he's a gamer. He wants to play every inning of every game. Had some injuries. Uh, but as pure a hitter, I always say he's the closest to Ted Williams I've seen in terms of approach to the ball. Mm. Not as tall as Ted was, uh, but and he, but he really hits well the opposite way, too. And we started pulling too much two years ago. He was sitting on the bench after batting practice. He was striking out a lot. And uh, I walked up and said, come on, take a walk with me. He goes, where are we going? I said, left field. Mm. He said, left field. They said, yeah, I want to introduce you to left field. Uh, you've forgotten all about him. He misses you. He started laughing. And I said, listen, think the other way. Use your hands to pull the ball, and and you, you'll be you. Don't try to pull everything. Mm -hmm. And he he got hot the last couple of weeks of uh, of that season and uh, finished strong. And then this year, I was so happy to see, really from the beginning of the season, he was literally as locked in as anybody in the game. Wow, that's for sure. Well, he's really just getting better and better. The film you never get tired of watching. The film you can watch every single day. Oh, um, well, I, you know, I would say The Naturals, my favorite ah. uh, mm -hmm. sports uh, movie. You know, it's so well done, the character and so forth. And uh, being Irish, The Quiet Man with uh, John Wayne and Marino Harris. Oh. You know, every time we go to Ireland, it plays at Ashford Castle uh, every day from five o'clock till midnight. So you can watch that. <laughs> but wow. uh, 
it's so much good entertainment now. But uh, those two, I guess, if I had to pick right now on the spot, would be it. Wow. And now the music artist or genre that got you energized for a game? Oh, we kidded on the set the other night. Liz Habib, who's the sports anchor at uh, Fox in L.A., Mm -hmm. uh, and Jose it was my partner for the pre and post. Uh, they, they would into the show each night. They would bring up the walk-up songs by the guys, and of course, most of them were pop, and mm -hmm. um, a variety of you know from weekend to you know whatever. And, I, and they they said, "What was your walk-up song?" I said, "Frank Sinatra, My Way." Uh -huh. and, so, <laughs> and we're talking seventies and eighties here. And uh, so we had fun. So every night, you know, in the second half of the show, would hear my way. It'd be my turn to give some analysis there. But uh, um, I think it's good for the guys. Yeah. Yes. Not as many organs anymore, but you got more guys uh, spinning records and spinning discs up there, which I think is good for the fans. Yes, no question. That's right. The DJs. Yes, indeed. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So, yeah. Yes. And, and, and last question, the hit and run segment. The one person you never met that's dead or alive that you would want to break bread with? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I've been blessed to meet, you know, princes and queens and presidents. President Reagan, arguably my favorite person, you know, non-family. Uh, mm -hmm. um, but I, I would think probably Pope John Paul. I think that he was a, uh, he was a leader of the free world. He did so many significant things. And not just as a Catholic, but as a human being um, for unity, you know, bringing people together, uh, faith, etc. So, you know, there's always that question, who would, who would be the four people you'd have at dinner, you know? So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, but I think in, in, in those terms, yes. And of course, President Reagan, I used to introduce him uh, before uh, his campaign stops and uh, he was a great human being, you know, oh. he... Uh, we would talk and, and, and I would hear him talk about, you know, important things in life. And, you know, faith was, was always first and, and, uh, and equality among, you know, among people. He was, he was quite, the, quite the man. And of course he had a great woman and, and Nancy kept him in mind, you know, so mm -hmm. yeah. well, I, yeah, I always say, you know, every good athlete or every good person has a, has a mother that's striving them, you know, that's to be right. that. So, um, Dads are pretty good too. Since I have seven kids, I try to be as good as Candace and yeah, yes. rearing. It's amazing. Seven kids and they're all successful, doing great things. Yes, indeed. So, wow. And uh, now four. You men mentioned the number four, the Mount Rushmore of Los Angeles Dodgers. To close out this interview, your Mount Rushmore of the Brooklyn slash Los Angeles Dodgers. Oh Excuse sure. Me. Oh, I would. Uh, I would say. Uh, of course, you have to have uh, Jackie Robinson, mm -hmm. uh, and you'd have to have uh, Sandy Koufax. Yes, indeed. I think. Um, you know, after that, uh, I'd like to see a whole mini group of about six or seven people. You know, you look at Maury Wills, who changed the game because of his of Speed. his leg. Mm -hmm. um, you look back at to um, uh, you know, O'Malley, Walter O'Malley, mm -hmm. who uh, bought the bought the team and, and really changed the direction of uh, of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And then he changed uh, baseball by by coming out west, forcing Horace Stone and the Giants to come out, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and to bring that rivalry uh, to the West Coast, which expanded, you know, the four corners, essentially, or at least the two coasts mm -hmm. uh, that led to the economics of the game expanding with uh, with television and, and the game. So mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so been a lot of Dodgers who made significant influences over the years, and uh, uh, and each team probably has their own Mount Rushmores. But uh, the Dodgers again have had significant people on and off the field that have been uh, true spokesmen for the game. So. Yeah, and and Chadwick Boseman, we lost him, the great actor. Yeah, uh, you know, absolutely. known for Black Panther, but he had great performances of great figures like James Brown, Thurgood Marshall, and Jackie Robinson. What did you think of his performance in the film 42? Uh, very good. Yeah, exceptional. And I met Jackie, uh, got to um, to see him and be around him and had my tops card, you know, and he signed it. Yes. And uh, wow. he literally, I was on the bench, he literally came up, didn't see me, and sat down, sat right on top of me, you know, he said, oh, I'm sorry, son. And, and uh, I said, oh, that's okay, Mr. Robbins, that's okay. Then he sat next to Pee Wee and, uh, uh, and Gil, and I'm thinking, Monday show and tell, nobody's going to believe that Jackie Robinson sat on my lap. You know, so, <laughs> uh, uh, well, yeah, so that, that was part of, uh, part, again, being able to grow up around your idols, learn from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wish I'd had a brother or sister, but being an only child with two parents that Mm. They said, you're a lot of work. I said, well, I'm it. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, and then to uh, go to a great institution like Michigan State and mm-hmm. uh, to have had a long career and then taken the virtues from that um, into uh, the rest of my life. Uh, I've been very blessed. Yes, indeed. Wow. Because I'm an only child myself. So I definitely know I can emp- yeah. empathize, you know, but, but it's yeah, great because... Because being alone makes you stronger, you know, and, and yeah. everything. So for sure. Get more creative, right? I mean, yes, we indeed. Keep ourselves busy. Yes. Yes, sir. <laughs> wow. But sure. just, and then wow. God's still joke. I've got seven kids now, seven grandkids. So uh, <laughs> balance of life. That's five right. daughters, too. Yeah, oh. five, five daughters balance out the 25 guys every day uh, on the team. Yes, indeed. <laughs> wow. But Mr. Steve Garvey, honor and a privilege to have you on the 36th episode of Where They At. I appreciate you, sir. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure and honor. Thank you. Good luck. God bless. Thank you all for listening to the 36th edition of Where They At with the great Steve Garvey. Steve Garvey is someone that is class personified, one of the most complete players in the last 50 years in Major League Baseball and also someone that deserves to be in the Hall of Fame no question about it with everything he's accomplished and how he carried himself on and off the field so definitely it's 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 going to happen for him to get into the Hall of Fame and I thank him for for his time and insight and his memories you know wow what a wonderful individual so yes if you want to catch other episodes of where they at other great interviews with these luminaries Check it out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher, and also on Catropolis.net. That's C-A-S-T-R-O-P-O-L-I-S.net. Catropolis.net. And if you like the music, please check out my website, which is N-A-B-A-T-E-I-S-L-E-S, Nabateas.com, where you can be able to hear tracks from my album, Eclectic Excursions. So definitely check that out. And, And Eclectic Excursions, it also streams on Spotify as well. It's on Apple Music, on Google Play, on Amazon Music, etc. Title, etc., etc. So check my album out for sure. It's an eclectic uh, mix of styles, genres, and sounds. So 
Thank you once again for listening to Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles. And remember to be safe, be healthy, stay woke, and be great to each other. Be encouraging to each other. Inspire each other. That's what we need in this world for sure. Take care, everybody. God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you.